chit-chat is suddenly interrupted by a loud popping and banging very close by. Despite the horrors of the day, I'm still the little lost naïf who's been bumbling across a war zone all day, blind to so many terrors. Is that Diwali? I ask. Diwali, as I've mentioned before, is the Hindu festival of light, celebrated with fireworks at this time of year. No, Chris, says Alex. That's the war. This is Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their own true stories of personal daring, and then we talk about it. I'm Michelle Rado. I never did see nothing like that. I never did dream nothing like that. Yes, Daring to Tell is back with season two. I have spent the summer attending some podcasting workshops, scoping out new writers, and upgrading a few things. But the major change to let you know is that Daring to Tell is becoming a monthly podcast. In order to spend the amount of time I really need to put each episode together to continue scouting out new writers and memoirs, it's just going to take me some time. And I know you're busy too. You probably have all kinds of podcasts stacking up in your queue, and there are just so many episodes and so little time, so hopefully one Daring to Tell episode a month will be good for you as well as a little more sustainable for me. The first episode, after taking six months off, is one I am so excited about. It is a great brand new book written by Chris Wolfe, who is a former colleague of mine who used to work for the BBC at WGBH on the public radio show called The World. Although I would see him up and down the hallways in our building for decades, we rarely had the opportunity to say more than hello to each other. He was in his international reporting world newsroom, a big room with tons of desks and all kinds of people on tight deadlines putting out a daily nationally distributed news show. I was always quite intimidated about even walking through their space. I was in my local radio broadcast world. My work might not have been on the same grueling daily deadline, but it made up for that in its relentless 24-7 unending schedule. Anyway, we both departed WGBH in the recent past. I discovered this over the summer when I saw a posting on LinkedIn that he had just written a book called Bumbling Through the Hindu Kush, a memoir of fear and kindness in Afghanistan. Immediately, I was hooked from just the title, and it was a great reason to message him and get in touch to have a conversation that went beyond those hallway hellos. You had this whole other life that obviously I would not have necessarily known about before you came to the States to work for the world. But about half of you had British accents. So we knew <laughs> we knew you were coming from somewhere else. So, so they had other stories. Yes. yes. So uh, I was um, even while I was at the world, technically, I was employed by the BBC World Service. So I was uh, almost 34 years man and boy 
with the BBC. Wow. And um, so I clawed my way up from being a researcher into the main newsroom of the BBC World Service. And after, you know, I had been established there for a little while, it got to the point in my career where I had to decide, do I want to be a foreign correspondent? Or do I want to be working more in like live production or some other kind of field that would best suit my talents? So the book is called Bumbling Through the Hindu Kush, a memoir of fear and kindness in Afghanistan. And it's about my misadventures in Afghanistan when I went to go visit a friend who was the correspondent there to see if I would like the life, uh, if it was a, a path that I wanted to pursue for, for my career. And I think people can already guess that I didn't really know what I was doing. And it was a little bit uh, too much adrenaline for my taste, to put it mildly. <laughs> and your friend, just so we know, setting this up, uh, is also named Chris to make things right. more fun and yes. complicated. Too many Chris's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Chris Bowers, who was a fun-loving guy from northern England, had a had a Lancashire accent, if people know what that is. I'm trying to think of where that is, Lancashire. Is that northern? This, he sounds like the Beatles. Okay, uh, that's what of, I was wondering, Liverpool. yeah, if it was like a, a Liverpudlian yes. thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. They pride themselves on having their own little local accents right, in each city right. and town. Yes. I accidentally, in the draft manuscript of the manuscript, called Chris a Mancunian, and when he uh, read it for me, he survived too, he said, don't you dare put it down that I'm from Manchester. It was from near Liverpool. Uh. And so I added to the book saying, yes, Lancashire is a area still riven with ethnic rivalries, most of which are determined by the religion of soccer. <laughs> right, right. And sort of goes back to the whole adage that I heard often and, and lived by, which is in radio, which is everything is local, like that's where it all comes down to. Yes. Not to get ahead of ourselves, one of the big takeaways I think people will get from the book is just how local feelings are in Afghanistan as well. Yeah. Uh, everyone's out for their family, their clan, yeah. their valley, their broader ethnic community. And then the idea of Afghanistan is way down the list. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, we will certainly hear more about that a little bit. But before we get there, one of the things that I always like talking about with the different writers who talk on Daring to Tell is about writing itself. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to read the very opening quote to you and get your take on a little bit about writing. So at the very beginning, you say, to finally put pen to paper creates a knot in my stomach. Is it fear? Excitement? A tear of happiness wells in my eye. How can a short story from so long ago, still create so much emotion instantly. Franklin, Massachusetts, July 1st, 2020. So it's happening again as you were oh, reading. I got the, <laughs> the, no, the knot in the stomach, the goosebumps. Yeah. And yeah, I'm a little bit, you know, verklempt right now. <laughs> and why? Why did you write this story? Uh, well, that was one of the the three reasons that I identified for trying to dredge up the past. One, the first one was for, in a sense, posterity. My daughter asked me and, you know, she was curious to for me to kind of document my stories. So I wrote it with her in mind on the assumption that people know nothing about Afghanistan or war or military history or 
um, mm-hmm. or even reporting. So mm-hmm. it's written to try and make it as accessible as to everyone as possible. And then the second reason that I got into it, which is the one that triggers the emotion, is the need to deal with it and process it and mm-hmm. come to terms with it and f- fact check it, all of those things, but primarily like the psychological one. It took, you know, it took quite a lot to reopen the uh, wounds is maybe too strong a word, but mm-hmm. like all those raw suppressed feelings and fears right oh, How... and the third reason was to share it with the public <laughs> sorry i know i was like wait was there three sorry yes because i think you know once i started to get feedback people said well this is you got a lot of great insights here into understanding the country and to understanding trauma so why don't you share it with a bigger audience well and that's one of the things that i loved about it because it does sort of overlap a few different areas going back to sort of the global and the local to understand who we are in a very broad sense and also understand who we are personally in what we do. And one thing that you said that I found interesting that I think as writers often we feel we're doing something we shouldn't do, but you mentioned dredging up the past. Why dredge up the past? And is it something that you were hesitant to do? Did you think you shouldn't do it? Or I don't know, like, how did that play in? Uh, I'd always meant to do it. You know, I had some, you know, relatively traumatic experiences, but I wouldn't have changed anything. I like, I do like having those stories and I did want to share them. And I'd always meant to get round to doing it, but, you know, life had got in the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, suddenly uh, I had the opportunity and I thought, well, if not now, when? So just dove in. Yeah. And what was (laughs) happening in the years while you were not writing it? Was it percolating? Was it completely on the back burner? Um, In terms of processing the writing or processing the events? I think the events first because that would come first right sure so initially it was tough to accept that this had been anything unusual when I got back to the the main newsroom in London it seemed that everybody had similar kind of stories and obviously some people had been through much worse experiences much more horrifying much more terrifying much more dangerous and so I just sucked it up as they say Mm -hmm. thinking it was just part of the job and wasn't a big deal but then you know it took two or three years but it did start to get nightmares and dreams um always it took me a while to figure out I was always trying to escape from these mountains and there were people pursuing me and sometimes you'd be caught and sometimes Mm. you know you'd wake up you know sometimes shouting some sometimes sweating just you know, on the point of execution or something like that. Wow. Um, so uh, that was that was no fun. Um, and did you know, I mean, were you, when you had nightmares, dreams about this type of a thing, did you still sort of brush it off or did you say, oh, gosh, I know what this is all about? I guess I'm trying to, like, wonder yeah. how conscious it was for you in the 30 years in between, right? It's It was a, a long and changing process, mm-hmm. to be honest. You know, yeah. there wasn't an immediate epiphany. There was the slow realization that these are recurring quite a lot. And that's not very good. Um, and then there was the realization, oh, even when I was, there was one dream, I remember where I was being pursued through London. But then I looked 
into back, you know, in my dream and realized they were Afghans who mm. were after us. Yeah. And it was like, oh, is this what it's about? Yeah. Um, <laughs> is this where it's coming from? Yeah. Because I, you know, initially inclined to just put it down to, oh, it's the stress of work and, and mm -hmm. uh, having a young family and such. But then, uh, you know, I did drink quite heavily for a while, which mm -hmm. helped mm -hmm. make it go away. Yeah. Um, and then there's a point in the book where I explain how things kind of got turned around after 9-11. Mm -hmm. uh, I was at, in charge of correspondent safety for the world at that time and immediately realized uh, I was going to be sending people off to war. And of course, they're going to first place they were going to go was Afghanistan. And so in a sense, it helped my own psychological needs to be in a position to put that experience and that yeah. fear to good use. Right. Um, in a sense, so that you could say it was worth it. And, you know, there were instances that I mentioned in the book where I believe my advice may have helped save a life here or there. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. you know, that's... <laughs> I'm sure. That's tremendously helpful that in dealing is, with yeah. a difficult experience. I would say I would never rose to the level of PTSD. Um, yes, it was post-traumatic stress, but it, I would never say it was post-traumatic uh, stress disorder because I was pretty much always able to function. I could get back to sleep. I could go mm -hmm. to work and hold down a job and I could get triggered during the day. But I started to develop a tool set for dealing with it. Yeah. Which is usually to suppress it until later. <laughs> suppress so. it until we can't suppress it anymore. It's something yes. I mean, and I like what you said about after 9-11. And that's one thing I want to make sure that listeners will know is that this all happened in a in a pre 9-11 world which for many people they don't remember it at all but it's hard to fathom a little bit given that Afghanistan has been so much part of our international landscape since then and but you were able to take your time and experience there and turn it into something practical and useful. And I think that that is some of the best things that can come out of trauma, which is to reapply knowledge that we have that someone else doesn't, that we might be able to make our our world a better place. Maybe sounds a little grandiose, but that's a little bit what it is. Like who we're with, we're becoming a positive change or force with what the special knowledge that you had to offer from right. from just a few days, I'll say a few days, a few weeks, we won't be too specific about how long you were in Afghanistan for. Right. Yeah. So it's like when people say, you know, there's a million fish stranded on the shore and you just start throwing them in one by one, you know, say, what's the point? Well, I think that one will be grateful. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. you do what you can <laughs> on yep. the scale that you can. Exactly. The other question that I have before we kind of do a setup of what you're going to read for us today is just the bigger question about writing. And why do you write, Chris? Why do I write? Um, well, despite being in radio all those years, I actually prefer writing. I just love it as a medium. I love reading and I love you know, everybody seems to be a, a YouTube fan these mm -hmm. days or a video fan and everything's yeah. got to be video. Yeah. And I would much rather read 
an instruction manual then. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Then look at a video, even though I know the video is going to be easier yeah. um, to understand, to find the right grommet or yeah. whatever. But right. you know, it's as sim simple as that. I like, I like the medium, and it took me a long while to accept what I thought was once upon a time flattery that I might be okay at it. So it's mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, yeah, you know. And I, I've come to accept some of that flattery, at least in terms of being quite good. I hope expressing complicated things in a way that people can understand. So as you know, I was the history guy for the world for many years. Yeah. And one of my great pleasures was trying to explain a complex international situation or the roots of it in a way that everybody could grasp and not feel patronized or mm -hmm. dumbed down for. Did you enjoy writing from a very young age? Like, how did you get into it? What I know that you do have that history buff background to you so was that the earliest stuff that you loved reading or what was usually there's a reading writing kind of hand-in-hand -hand thing going on uh, yes it's always been history or historical fiction pretty much mm -hmm. one of my high school buddies we knew each other from before elementary school we still keep in touch from the UK he on one of my Facebook posts recently he was saying oh I remember our assignment, I was so proud. I did nine pages for a historically based story we had to do, and you did 24. <laughs> I was wow. crushed. And it was like, he remembered it. And what grade was that? 24 pages? That's pretty We were impressive. like 12 or 13 oh, uh, years of age. So, yes, I guess it's been there a while. Right. So before we get into you reading from the book today you're going to read from a section that's pretty much smack dab in the middle. So you were you went to Kabul, Afghanistan in November of 1991, as you mentioned. You were going, meeting this friend of yours, whose name is also Chris, and wondering if you would want to have the life of a foreign correspondent, because you're working for the BBC, Right. And I had I had made the mistake of uh, suggesting it would be nice to see more of the country than just the capital. Yes. Thinking we would fly from one safely held government city to another. But instead, we hitched a ride with an aid convoy and bumbled straight into the war. Yeah. <laughs> so your friend had a different interpretation of what you were potentially hoping for, although he gave you exactly the experience that you said that you were after. Yes. He did acknowledge recently it was a, probably a little bit more intense than <laughs> yes. uh, most other people saw, you know. And before, I don't think we've mentioned, you had a bit of military experience before working for the BBC, and maybe you want to talk about that a little bit. Yes. So I joined the British equivalent of the National Guard, the Territorial Army, and was a infantry private for three years, but uh, only part-time. So we were trained in the pretty basic stuff that infantry privates are trained in all over the world, how to shoot and how to dig trenches, but other things like how to recognize threats at different times of day and night and the sounds and effects of different types of weapons, which ended up being quite useful in Afghanistan, being able to recognize different vehicles and, and different pieces of kit, as we say, right. to, to know what they were and what they could do and what you should be worried about. And But, of course, your experience was all in a preparation practice scenario. Yes. I was never deployed uh, for the military other than on peacetime exercises. So we would go to Germany and dig holes in the ground to try and delay the uh, Red Army if they decided to cross the inner German mm. border. 
boy. Yeah, during the height of the Cold War. And then the occasional bit of guard duty in London mm-hmm. um, against possible uh, attack by the IRA, mm-hmm. which was a, you know, a serious threat at the time. Right, right. So then, as you mentioned, there was this quote-unquote opportunity for a road trip. And maybe you can give us just a little hint about weather. You didn't come with any winter attire or anything like that no, either. No, yeah. no proper winter kit. Just um, one pair of shoes and <laughs> one pair of jeans. And yeah. uh, that was about it. Um, and so there was a convoy, as you were saying, and you and Chris were in different vehicles for safety. Well, that was after the minefield, which people will have to read about that yeah. experience. <laughs> That's not um, in what we're going to hear today. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the convoy was led by a New Zealander called Fred Estel. He was a tough veteran of the New Zealand Army and had experience in demining, i.e. the removal of mines and explosives, but was at a higher level with the United Nations at the time. Uh, we also had with us another guy from the UK whose name was Alex Shaw, and he was a deminer with the Halo Trust, which is a nonprofit group, a charity that demines Afghanistan and places all over the world that are affected by landmines, which are a big nightmare for civilians in so many countries still right. to this day. Um, and then a couple of Afghan drivers as well who worked for the UN. Osman is the only one whose name I remember. I don't remember the other guy. And the Halo Trust that you mentioned, Alex, was a volunteer with this organization. Is that right? Yeah, it's incredible to believe, you know, you've got this army educated, college educated man who in his late 20s is pretty much working for peanuts in a lethal situation every day Mm -hmm. for, for work just out of virtue. And it's hard to believe, like the Afghan secret police were pretty convinced that they were spies and were often being harassed by them for that reason. But, you know, it's my opinion that all the ones I met were sincerely doing their best for virtuous reasons. Mm-hmm. And out of curiosity, is the Halo Trust is the organization, are they still in operation today? Or? They are still very much in operation. And wow. they have lost people over the years, but they lost the most in a tragic attack in June of this year, 2021, mm. when several of their people were massacred as they slept and these are um, all Afghans who are you know working for the same virtuous reason of trying to help their communities help their their areas you know free from this threat of landmines and I just give a little bit about why landmines freak me out so much is because as tourists as we were pretty much in the land we can stay on paved roads so you're so much safer if you can stay on the pavement than you are if you have to go into the fields like farmers do, who have no choice. You know, that's where their farms are. And landmines are scattered everywhere. And to this day, two or 3,000 Afghans are killed or wounded. You know, a lot of them are children by these landmines that were mostly planted in the 1980s and 90s. There's still millions of them there. And was that a Soviet? Yes. Yes. So that was the uh, Soviet Union occupied Afghanistan for 10 years from 1979. And then their communist successor regime survived for another three years doing much the same thing. And they, to their credit, did keep very good maps. Uh, The Halo Trust assured me that they had seen them and worked with them of where the landmines were, but though all the records were destroyed in the Civil War from 1992. So now it's this deadly game of lava. Yeah, I mean, it just completely 
stuns me that, first of all, that they keep maps. You think, well, that's, I guess, at least the responsible thing to do if you're going to plant landmines. Then when it gets lost, you know, I mean, uh, I'm sorry. I just can't even <laughs> consider how devastating that is and for the people who are faced with no choice but to farm their land. Right. Yeah. And that's why I think people in the U.S. sometimes talk blithely about starting a revolution or a new civil war or something. And they really have no idea what that would entail mm -hmm. and the the horror that could bring just in terms of like robbing ordinary people of that kind of cocoon of security that right. we live in, which is such a privilege, which we don't even recognize or realize until right. we go somewhere like uh, Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is a very big eye opener to see your journey from a place where we do take that kind of security largely for granted um, to where it wasn't. And we will obviously hear more about that. But as I um, look through a couple other questions before we get started, so sure. we're going to hear more about the geography, but I wonder if you might just want to describe the landscape that you're in and this, I don't know if I'm going to say it right, but the Selang Tunnel. Perfect. Yes. So Afghanistan is pretty much bisected into two main regions, north and south, by the Hindu Kush mountains, which are often like in a sense eponymous with the the name of Afghanistan because they dominate the country so much mm -hmm. and these are a brutal rugged extension of the Himalaya uh, rising to like 20,000 feet and there is only one real road through the Hindu Kush and that runs along the Salang Valley up to the Salang Pass and the Soviets built a tunnel to try and make life a little bit easier and so they could keep going even in all but the most adverse weather. And that was where we were heading to try and get to the north of Afghanistan in our little humanitarian aid convoy. Right. And now the the war itself doesn't play a, I mean, well, it plays a role, but I was going to say, relevant to this section, can you just give us a quick overview in terms of who were the, the warring factions involved? There were government forces and Mujahideen, which again, in a post 9-11 world, sometimes mean different things. So maybe who, who's who? Right. So the government was still the government of Najibullah, the communist installed secret policeman who was the successor to the Soviet occupation. He was a product of the Soviet invasion. So basically like the Soviet-backed Afghan... The Soviet-installed government was still in power right. and had, unlike, unfortunately, uh, the current government, done surprisingly well in holding off the Islamic rebels, mm -hmm. the Mujahideen, the Holy Warriors, okay. uh, for three years by the time I got there. And people were surprised how well they had done. And it was largely because the Soviets had kept giving them money and aid and weapons and a free hand to make alliances with whatever local warlords they might be able to win over. Mm -hmm. So we had just passed through a formal defensive line on the Shamali Plain just before the Selang Valley starts. And then there we were, had driven through no man's land for a little bit. And then we were just coming up into the valley at the start of this 100-mile pass and... That's where the chapter begins. So the Mujahideen are the rebels, as described? Correct. Okay. Unlike 
well, in some ways, like the Taliban, they're not a, like a monolithic force. They're a disparate group of different peoples and different personalities who are together collectively fighting the communist intrusion and sometimes fighting each other as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, what did you learn about taking pictures? There's a reference to a camera. Huh. Well, the first time we run into like a formal defensive position, I thought, oh, this is interesting. I'll take a picture. And the, the much more experienced guys I was with said, like, well, put that away. You know, you're, you can't photograph actual military positions. That's the technical <laughs> definition of spying, you know, recording what a military position looks like and where it's located. Because if the other side gets hold of your pictures, they'll be able to locate uh, weaknesses and mm -hmm. in that position and, you know, specific locations which could be deadly for the for the people you're photographing. So, you know, on that basis, you could be summarily executed as a spy if, right. you know, all the wrong circumstances occurred. So it was like, oh, okay, I guess we're going to have to be a little bit more discreet about taking snaps. And thus the bumbling aspect of your <laughs> Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I, well, it's just funny because, you know, I, I saw myself as this, you know, military man, self-reliant, resilient, mm -hmm. capable, physically fit, right. and able to take on all the challenges of, of a war zone, and really had no idea what I was getting into and what you really need to be on the lookout for and what you really need to be doing and what you unfortunately are going to see. Right, right. So now I will also wrap up before I know a lot of, a lot of little setup things here, but Dari is the Afghan language or one of the Afghan languages. It's the official language. The yes. official language. Okay. There are about two hundred altogether, and Dari is essentially an archaic form of Farsi oh. of Persian. Oh, okay. So it sounds like Shakespearean English would to us. Oh, interesting. To okay. Iranians, and the Dari that we all learn is Muli Madahid, which <laughs> is. United Nations. The United Nations, which gets shouted as yeah. a uh, refrain right. frequently through your trip. Right, trying to get through those checkpoints. Yeah. So let's uh, go into Chapter 10 in the middle of your book. You write and will speak in the present tense, but it's just good to remember that's the present tense of 1991. Right, the historical present. All right. Well, Chris, read your story. Chapter 10. Into the Valley of Death, the Salang Pass. After Charikar, the plain narrows and the mountains start to close in. After Jabal Asaraj, the foothills start to encroach on the road, and you are clearly in a valley. Soon, we come to another checkpoint. This one is different. The checkpoint has a few militiamen, but it's mostly manned by regular army soldiers in uniform. We are not allowed forward. There is fighting ahead. We can't hear any shooting or explosions, so it's a little mystifying. Alex says that just means the fighting is several miles up the valley. Again, I'm speechless. This is not what I expected. I'm excited and curious, but also at a loss to know what we can do now. There is only one road north, and warring factions are currently fighting for control of it. However, those warring factions have not encountered Fred Estel. Fred jumps out of the pickup and demands to see the local army commander. He knows enough Dari to communicate his key points personally. I don't recall there being an interpreter. Fred is not especially tall, but he's thick-set and gets like a bulldog when needed. This makes it seem like he towers over the officer at the checkpoint. Fingers are pointed, 
he's not afraid to be loud. Radios crackle, and we are allowed to move forward to another checkpoint. Here, the unfortunate Afghan army officer gets a severe talking to, partially in English, partially in Dari. I can hear Fred, not quite yelling, but very forcefully ordering the Afghan officer to reach out to the rebel commander and arrange a ceasefire long enough for us to pass through. I can't quite believe it. The nerve of asking commanders in combat to stop fighting. It's a perfect example of a Yiddish concept I learned in America, chutzpah. I also can't quite believe that the Afghan army commander has a line of communication to his Mujahideen opponent. I can hear Fred stating that the supplies we are carrying must get through before the snows close the passes or innocent civilians will die and reminding the officer of the power and influence of the United Nations and asking if he wanted to be personally responsible for the damage to the government's international reputation if he blocked the supplies from getting through. I'm skeptical Fred will succeed and resign myself to a quick drive back to Kabul. Maybe we'd get there in time for a drink at the International Club. We wait. Radios crackle. Fred looms over the radio operator. I don't know Dari, but I do know radio protocol from my time as a radio operator in the infantry. You can hear call signs being exchanged and so forth. I don't recall how long we wait, but finally the radio man looks up and says something. There's nodding, checking of watches and some haggling. Fred jumps back in the pickup. We're off in ten, he announces. He's done it. A ceasefire starts in ten minutes and will last two hours. That should give us time to get past the danger zone. If I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't have believed it. I knew humanitarian ceasefires could be arranged and happen all the time, but for some reason I'd assumed they were set up way in advance, way above Fred's pay grade. I push him on the communications issue. I've never heard of such a thing. You mean to say this guy has a direct line to the chap he's fighting, the man who's trying to kill him? Yes, says Fred. Matter of fact, this one was a little easier since they're cousins. What? Yes, he's fighting his cousin. Happens all the time here. Again, I'm speechless. It makes sense, but I'm bewildered. I have to take my hat off to Fred and the countless other men and women like him, who for decades now have risked their lives to help others, strangers, enduring hardships and dangers in ways we cannot imagine while we've been sleeping comfortably in our beds. I've read countless books on war and insurgency, but my experience of the real thing so far has resembled nothing like the writings of many military historians. I make a note to be wary of those armchair warriors in future. We are now in the foothills of the Hindu Kush and entering the infamous Salang Valley. Were it not for the ugly footprint of war, it would have been beautiful. Not picturesque like the Swiss Alps, but a primitive, raw kind of beauty. The Salang River winds its way down the valley floor, bringing life to little scrubby trees and bushes, mostly in various shades of brown, but some green, grey rocks and the ubiquitous khaki dirt. Almost immediately, we start to see the wreckage of 12 years of war. Colourful broken pieces of metal that were once civilian cars and trucks. Hulks of freight trucks, four-tonners and 18-wheelers, burned out, some recently, some long ago. There are few prayer flags, though. No one is allowed into the valley to mourn. More terrifyingly, 
we see the rubble where villagers once stood. This is the awful reality of the Soviet attempt to clear the civilian population from this strategic bottleneck, the Salang Valley. Between Jabal Saraj and Puli Kumri, 100 miles to the north, we do not see another civilian. But at every turn we see the devastated remains of farms, homes, stables, sheds. Mostly just khaki rubble now. It's been 10 years since the Soviets went house by house, blowing them up and driving away the people who had lived there for countless generations. We see narrow fields marked by stone terraces, painstakingly built up the sides of the hills, now empty and lifeless. The Soviets did not want the people or the buildings providing shelter and sustenance for the Dushman, the guerrilla. As a counterinsurgency tactic, it was a disaster. The people, at least those who survived, became embittered and cried out for vengeance. The men came back and fought. They are still fighting. The evidence is all around us. We see a lifeless tank in the riverbed. Fresh green paint indicates it's not been there too long. Then, an abandoned armoured personnel carrier, like the one we'd seen on the outskirts of Kabul. A military truck, upside down. A self-propelled gun, trackless and wheelless. Another tank pushed off the roadway, and then another, and another, and another. The Salang is littered with these metallic skeletons of Soviet military power, dozens upon dozens. There are even three tanks still in a perfect V formation, abandoned in the middle of the river. I can see unexploded ordnance just carelessly lying around. Big grey bombs dropped from an aircraft who knows how many years before that failed to detonate. Here lies the turret of a tank, but with no chassis nearby. Sometimes it's hard to see why a particular vehicle had been abandoned, as it looks okay. Others have clearly been ripped apart. The war is still ripping the valley apart. The road starts to zigzag, following the course carved by the river. At each turn is an Afghan army outpost. It's interesting to note how they use the ground, the geometry of war, I had assumed you would build your outposts on the high ground in the angles of the zigzags to get something like 360-degree visibility. But the Afghan army posts are on the valley floor, in the acute angles of the zigzags. You could immediately see why. There are heavy weapons like tanks, anti-aircraft guns and howitzers tucked into these corners. These weapons and their ammo are heavy. They are easier to deploy and easier to supply on the valley floor beside the road. More importantly, they have a clear view. These positions are at the apex of a V-shaped field of fire. As the road zigzags, it obviously creates these V-shapes. If you stand at this apex, you can simultaneously see down the valley in one direction and up the valley in the other. In some places you see stone-built machine gun posts and strong points, half buried into the ground. The weapons are usually protected by barricades made from sandbags or rocks. Stone huts provide shelter for their crews and other troops. Each post is surrounded by a cluster of wreckage from burnt and broken vehicles. The soldiers seem good-humoured whenever we are required to stop. This must be a rough assignment. The Salang Valley starts in the south at about 5,200 feet above sea level and rises over the next 40 to 50 miles to the tunnel at 11,155 feet. It's November. It's cold and damp. The threat of attack is ever-present. The debris and signs of death among your predecessors at these posts 
are present everywhere. It occurs to me now that perhaps we were the source of their good humour, since Fred had negotiated this two-hour ceasefire. Of the Mujahideen, there is no sign, of course. This is not like the Christmas truce of 1914 in World War I, where the combatants came together to sing carols and play soccer. No, the Mudge are out of sight. Even in combat, it's unlikely you would be able to see them. My military training had long ago shown me just how unreal is Hollywood's idea of warfare. You almost never see your enemy in real life. Maybe a muzzle flash would give you a hint of their location. But Hollywood requires a much more intimate image of war to sell its product. We zigzag our way up the valley, occasionally stopping at checkpoints or whenever a curious officer wants to check us out. I try to take a few photos, but I'm now supremely conscious of the need not to snap actual military outposts. The wrecked tanks and APCs seem like fair game, but it's hard. You have to keep the camera out of sight. You bring it up ready when you see a wreck, but sometimes you've flown by too fast, or there's a soldier watching, or brush or rocks obscure the view. I do surreptitiously snap another live T-62 standing guard, partially covered with a camo net. The foothills get higher and higher, and the valley floor gets narrower and narrower. The clouds close in, making it gloomy and misty in places. For many miles there are no spectacular views to enjoy as the hills crowd us in. But finally we round another corner and get a view of the high, snow-capped mountains before us. We can faintly make out the road zigzagging up the mountainside a couple of miles in the distance. Boy, is it starting to get cold. I can't tell if that shiver is cold or adrenaline, but it rattles the knot in my stomach. There is almost no brush now, just dirt and rocks. Above us, ice and snow. The final approach to the tunnel is along a spectacular set of hairpin turns. They are exciting enough to negotiate in a pickup. I cannot imagine what it's like for the drivers of heavy trucks. There is plenty of evidence that for some, it's too much. We can see several 18-wheelers tumble down the mountainside. We know not whether from accident or attack. At the top, we must wait. The Salang Tunnel is a marvel of engineering and was a state-of-the-art piece of infrastructure when it opened in 1964. But still, to this day, it can only comfortably accommodate one lane of vehicles. Traffic takes turns to flow in each direction, changing every day. Today is a south-to-north day. We still have to wait our turn, as they only allow so many through at a time. We attract a crowd. Members of the garrison of this godforsaken mountain Erie decide to come and fraternise with us. Collection of boys, mostly, with perhaps the roughest assignment of all, given the constant cold and damp at this altitude. There are few mudge attacks this high up. The soldiers are clearly bored out of their minds most of the time. We pause for a photo op. There's a tank dug in up to its turret facing down the valley. Its 115mm gun would have been able to use its full range. You can see for miles. There is an 18-wheeler, a fresh one, a few hundred yards down the cliff. The Salang Tunnel is itself a place of death. Avalanches are not uncommon. In November 1982, there was an incident that blocked the tunnel. At the time, Western media claimed it was the result of a Mujahideen attack, but it now appears to have been a traffic accident. More recent sources say there was a fire. But regardless of the cause, drivers were stuck in the tunnel and kept their motors running for warmth. The carbon monoxide killed many.
pro-rebel sources say two to three thousand Soviets and Afghans perished from the fire or from choking. In reality, it may have been fewer than 200. Nobody knows for sure. The Soviets never released details, so the event hangs over the Salang Tunnel like a legend, a myth, part of local folklore. The story fades or grows, depending on the storyteller. I'm passing through the Salang Tunnel exactly nine years after the disaster. I'm well aware of that grim event. I'd read a novel mythologizing the Mujahideen's courage in taking on the Soviets, and that work of fiction had depicted the tunnel disaster as a result of an attack by the rebels. I did not know the less glamorous truth. So it seems perfectly reasonable to me that what has happened before can happen again. Entering the tunnel produces an interesting feeling of awe and trepidation in me. I'm told the ventilation system is much better now, as if that would help. The tunnel is built in the best Soviet style of architecture, grim and practical, dirty concrete. For the first few hundred yards, you pass through a section that is only semi-enclosed. Dozens of large arches are open on one side as you hug the mountainside on the other. Then suddenly, you enter the darkness. It's very poorly lit, so it's hard to make out details. It seems to last forever, but is really only 1.7 miles underground. You can almost taste the exhaust fumes. They create a permanent fog that is alternately white, grey, blue and purple. Soviet-era trucks and cars are not known for their clean emission standards. I can't help thinking of those hundreds of poor people who choked to death on fumes here in this tunnel during the disaster just nine years before. Suddenly, we emerge from the tunnel into misty sunlight. We are now officially north of the Hindu Kush in Central Asia. Fred is starting to get rattled. His composure had been remarkable up to this point, but now he's getting anxious. I don't know why, so I ask what's up. It's getting late. Anything on the road after dark is considered fair game by both sides. Anyone trying to get into a town after dark is going to be shot to pieces and we still have a long way to go. Oh, I think. I didn't know that. Makes sense, though. I, I hope we're okay. This is becoming my life now, being surprised to learn about new life and death issues every hour or so. The north side of the Salang is pretty similar to the approach on the south side. The road descends from the tunnel mouth at over 11,000 feet down a series of hairpin turns. The mountainsides are similarly decorated, with broken trucks, cars, buses and military vehicles. I can't help thinking that a scrap metal merchant will one day do a roaring trade hereabouts. Soon, the hairpin turns become more gentle and the road starts to zigzag, following the river. A different river, of course. This is one of several small tributaries that run roughly northward to join the Kunduz River and eventually the Amudaria, the legendary Oxus of Alexander the Great's time. There's also the same 50 miles of devastation as there is on the south side. When you read in military history books about a region being laid waste, this is what it looks like. Overgrown fields, broken walls, no signs of life, no cattle, no sheep, no goats, no dogs, no people, or at least no civilians. Our two-hour ceasefire expired some time ago. Some of the soldiers are now looking more attentive, surveying the hills. 
we get a good look at them at each of the usual checkpoints that we must pass through. Muli matahid! Muli matahid! As we descend, the mist thins out and the sun breaks through in patches. The road drops 9,000 feet in the 50 miles or so from the mouth of the Salang Tunnel to the city of Pulikumri at the northern end of the pass. Ears pop constantly. Slowly, the valley begins to broaden. The turns become less pronounced, more curves and zigzags, and ultimately the road opens to a narrow plain a few hundred yards wide. Long, low bridges crisscross the mostly dry riverbeds. A pale orange glow begins to cover the landscape. The sun is going down. We're entering the dangerous time of twilight. As the shadows begin to lengthen, the truck carrying my BBC buddy, Chris, starts to fall behind. I can't help thinking about Fred's warning about the vulnerability of vehicles on the road after dark. I dread to think what might happen if they don't keep up. Each time we make a turn around a foothill, I look back until Chris comes into view. Each time it's taking a little longer. Then ultimately, there's a moment when we don't see him at all. Where is he? I'm thinking to myself. As we make the next turn, he becomes visible thanks to a fold in the elevation. But it's not good. His truck is halted, maybe a half mile back. They've stopped, I announce. Fred's lips purse. He and Alex exchange half a glance, as if to communicate something. I think they've broken down, I say. There is silence. If anything, Fred is driving faster. Every second takes us further away from my friend. I guess we should go pick them up, I offer, naively. There's a pause before Fred answers. There's no time. The pit falls out of my stomach. There's nothing else to say. It's almost dark, adds Alex. I say nothing. I'm thinking, I know, I know, it's too dangerous to be out after dark. But what the fuck? There's no radio in Chris's truck. No way to make sure they're okay. The last few miles seem to take an eternity. My stomach feels like it has no bottom. Imagine the way you feel on the biggest drop of the biggest roller coaster you've ever ridden. My head is spinning. I cannot imagine how Chris and his driver can approach any checkpoint safely after darkness falls. So, I think to myself, in a short while, I could well be the new de facto BBC correspondent in Kabul. And my first story might have to be of my predecessor's untimely end. I feel nauseous. The sky is still light as we approach a substantial-looking checkpoint. It's on the defensive perimeter of our destination. Once we're through, we should be safe for the night. Unlike my buddy Chris. I'm told we've reached our destination for the day, the city of Pulikumri, capital of Baglan province. It's the guardian of the northern end of the Salang Valley, it's firmly under the control of the communist government. I thought I knew all the major cities of Afghanistan, but I've never heard of Pulikhumri until this moment. In my notes, I spell it as Pulikhumri. Everyone calls it Puli. There's not much to it. Puli appears to comprise mostly low-rise, square, flat-roofed cement buildings. It's a long, thin town stretched out along the river. The hills don't seem very far away, and I feel like they are close enough to command the town if you could get artillery up there. There are lots of soldiers, their faces clean-shaven, showing their support for the government. There are plenty of military installations, fuel and ammo dumps, presumably supporting the garrisons of the outposts along the Salang. 
It's getting dark by the time we pull up to our home for the night. A whitewashed two-story office block. It's Alex's base, the headquarters of the International Mine Clearance and Safety Team, which is led by the British charity group he works for, the Halo Trust. What about the other truck, I ask, as I grab my backpack, trying not to let my anxiety show. I spoke to the guards at the checkpoint, answers Fred. Hopefully they'll keep an eye out for them. I feel that it's a slim hope. Inside, I'm having a hard time keeping feelings of grief at bay. I'm also feeling a little anxiety about the prospect of taking on the awesome responsibility of running the BBC Bureau, for which I'm clearly unprepared. Mentally, I'm thinking through how to notify Chris's next of kin if necessary. I don't know his family personally, so I assume the BBC would do it. I do know his girlfriend. All we can do is wait and trust that the sentries aren't too jumpy tonight. We make a base in a large room on the second floor, which is crowded with a mix of desks and office chairs, as well as a couch and armchairs. Everything seems very black and white. The walls are clean and whitewashed, the furniture black. The two-tone look is unnatural and it feels uncomfortable. Alex's colleagues are pleased to be reunited with him. I can't recall how many there are, maybe two or three, but I do remember they have the same background as Alex. They're all former British military officers in their late 20s. I'm a little sceptical that such former officers should all wind up here as poor volunteers doing extremely dangerous work for a charitable organisation, but they really are those kind of unsung public servants. Apparently the Khad, the Afghan secret police, is also suspicious of them and believes they may well still be working for Her Majesty's government on the down low, doing the demining work as cover. Their phones are constantly tapped. Whatever the case, their demining work is nothing short of heroic. Mines are everywhere in Afghanistan, as I'd learnt through the course of this long day. The Halo Trust itself would lose three volunteers to an anti-tank mine just eight months after my visit. We sit around on the couch and armchairs or perch on the desks chatting, drinking tea. They're interested in me and my experience as an infantryman in the Territorial Army, I'm fascinated by their work. I'm trying to keep my mind busy, trying not to worry about Chris until I have to. The chit-chat is suddenly interrupted by a loud popping and banging very close by. Despite the horrors of the day, I'm still the little lost naif who's been bumbling across a war zone all day, blind to so many terrors. Is that Diwali? I ask. Diwali, as I've mentioned before, is the Hindu festival of light, celebrated with fireworks at this time of year. No, Chris, says Alex. That's the war. I half leap out of my chair, ready to dive to the floor for cover. Alex and the other Halo officers don't even flinch. How do you know about Diwali? asks Alex, leaning forward, very curious. He had served with the Gurkha regiment in the British Army, and most Gurkhas are Hindu, so would be celebrating the festival of light Diwali this week. But what's that? I gesture with my thumb out the window to the war that they had just so glibly announced was taking place seemingly across the street. I can make out heavy machine guns and small explosions like mortar shells. Oh, don't worry, says Alex about the gunfire. Most of it is outgoing. Tell us how you know about Diwali. Most of it is outgoing, I think to myself. That means some of it is incoming. Why aren't we taking cover? What the heck have I gotten myself into? For Brits of a certain age, like myself, 
I can only think of the dinner party scene from the campy 1960s comedy film Carry On Up the Khyber, where a party of British officers and their wives nonchalantly carry on as if nothing is happening while their compound is under assault from Afghan tribesmen. One civilian, the Reverend Belcher, is the only one who seems to feel the gravity of the situation, ducking for cover and flinching at every artillery blast. Everyone else is oblivious, from the governor, Sir Sidney Ruffdiamond, to the young Captain Keane. I am become the Reverend Belcher. I'm thinking, you're all stark raving mad. I'm also thinking of Chris and the other truck out there. Did they make it through yet? Are they still out there? Are they the target of this shooting? No, seriously, insists Alex, the former Gurkha officer. How do you know about Diwali? I was with the Gurkhas, so it's obvious to me, but it's so rare to run into someone else from the UK who knows what we're talking about. I sit back down. I breathe. I accept the situation. I realise these guys are experienced enough to have made a real risk calculation about this location and the sounds we can hear rattling the windows. I appreciate the distraction offered by the conversation. I used to live in Hounslow, I explain. Big Indian community there. The town even has a joint fireworks display for Diwali and Guy Fawkes night. Ah, they all say knowingly. Plus, I was just in Delhi where they were all getting geared up, I add. I feel like I have scored some brownie points with my cultural knowledge and also from being able to regain my composure. Why the heck did I think it was Diwali, I'm thinking to myself. I know for a fact that Afghanistan is just about 100% Muslim. I realise it's just cognitive dissonance. I've heard plenty of gunfire in my time, while safely on an army range. I've never heard weapons fired in anger before, at any other point in my life. My brain just reached for the first thing it could find. Fireworks. There's no Guy Fawkes here, so it must be Diwali. Oh boy, I don't realise just how familiar I am to become with the sound of flying lead. The banging and popping intensifies. Glimmers of flashes can be seen between the buildings. A giant BM-21 Grad multiple rocket launcher is stationed on a platform on some high ground not far from the Halo Trust building. You can see it from the window. It shrieks a salvo into the night. The gunfire is constant. They tell me the shooters are mostly just letting each other know they're there. The Halo guys tell me the only time they hit the deck is during weddings. I have no idea what they're talking about. Just about that time, the other truck pulls up. It's undamaged. Chris and the driver are fine. Praise be. It seems that Fred's heads up to the sentries at the checkpoint did the trick. Chris appears oblivious to the risk he had faced. To this day, he can barely recall the incident. The driver had fixed whatever needed fixing with the truck and they had set out again, maybe only half an hour behind us, but they'd been slowed down by the need for caution in the dark. Needless to say, I'm relieved. I think I punched Chris on the shoulder. I told him I thought he was a goner, had bought the farm for sure, gone west, had shuffled off this mortal coil and gone to meet his maker, and that I had been ready to take over his job. I'm pretty sure he thinks I'm joking. Just another day on the job. That evening, I learned something of the power of what we did at the BBC World Service. 
At that time, Bush House provided about 30 minutes of programming each evening in the Afghan languages of Pashto and Dari. As I sat in that room with the Halo Trust folks, there was a perceptible drop in the amount of firing outside. It went from a constant rattle to an intermittent crackling. It's noticeable enough for me to ask, what's that now? That's you, says one of our hosts with a very straight face. What do you mean? It's eight o'clock. The BBC News in Pashto has just started. Gesturing a hand towards the men shooting outside somewhere, our host adds, they tune in to find out who's winning. I'm not sure if he's joking. I'm pretty sure that even the BBC Pashto service wouldn't have much granular detail about a skirmish in one small town. But they would be able to give listeners the big picture, and that was clearly enough to make Afghans on both sides of the war stop and listen. To prove the point, literally as soon as the broadcast ends, the firing immediately picks up again. That was the power of radio in the pre-internet age. We talk for a long time, mostly about the hows and wherefores of demining. I find it fascinating how they do their work, how they recruit and train local help, the risks they take. Not all mines can be found with a metal detector. Some anti-personnel mines are of plastic. The metal detectors don't always work. How you have to probe around the suspected mine with a knife to find it and determine its type, age and condition, and the best way to deactivate it or remove it. Each act of removal is a masterpiece. Then there are the dangers of piling up the cleared mines in trucks. More than once something had gone wrong and a truck full of mines had blown up. Cleared areas are mapped and marked. The tragic reality is that for all the art and science and courage needed to clear a minefield, it's really all just a drop in the bucket when compared to the millions of landmines that still remain. The fighting outside continues. Our hosts explain that the rebels come round after dark to take a few pot shots or drop in a few mortar rounds from the hills on either side of the town. The garrison fires back, pretty indiscriminately. Sometimes they're just shooting at shadows. It's not very deadly, they assure me. Eventually it's time to hit the sack. We have another long day ahead of us. I learn that Pulikumri is not our final destination, just a stop along the way. We're planning to hitch a ride with the UN much further north tomorrow to another city I've never heard of. That's the place where the people need the humanitarian aid, the fuel, food and medical supplies that the UN vehicles are carrying. A place called Talakan. Chris and I unroll our sleeping bags on the floor of the Halo Trust office with the armchairs. It's been a long and traumatic day. Images fill my mind. The smouldering wisps of smoke from the overturned BTR-60 near Kabul the old farmer running towards the scene, the split head of the soldier lying nearby, the whiteness of his flesh, bled white, the other corpse, the ocean of blood, the checkpoints, the green field where we peed off the side of the roadway for fear of mines, the line of howitzers, Fred blaring into the radio to demand a ceasefire, the unbelievable amount of battle wreckage along the Salang, the purple haze of fumes in the Salang tunnel, the villages laid waste. Then the feelings well up. There's the shock from that moment of realisation that we were leaving safety behind us after we saw those first casualties right on the outskirts of the capital. The helplessness. The visceral fear when my buddy's truck broke down. The relief at being reunited. The minor panic when the gunfire erupted. 
the nonchalance of my colleagues. These images, these feelings, have not gone away. They've stayed with me all this time, seared into my brain. Sometimes they lie dormant for a long time, until a sound or a sight brings them back. That night of Thursday, November 7th, 1991, was the first night in my life that I fell asleep to the sound of guns being fired in anger. It would not be the last. Well, I feel like saying wow hardly even scratches the surface. Um, this is such an incredible story, Chris. And as I've said to you before, I think that it's the the fact of of how you have a foot in both worlds. You're sort of you're somewhat of an outsider and an expert in both and none at the same time. And that's <laughs> what gives us the really interesting perspective. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I that means a lot because um I really was trying to capture what it felt like and what I'm told other people who've read it say it is like for them too when they first encounter this kind of life. And for many, they start to forget the details because they just go through so much afterwards that it just becomes a part of their life mm-hmm. and so routine that they forget the details. And so, I don't know, I guess I was lucky in a way and that you know my experience was relatively short so I could not get confused with other incidents. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that's actually a really good observation that it, it was short and you didn't go on to be a foreign correspondent. Yes, at least not in war zones. <laughs> not, not in war zones. Not many war zones. I did, uh, yeah, anyway. But it was a short amount of time. And so as we were kind of talking about the processing before, it did give your subconscious perhaps a chance to work on what had happened when you were focused on other things and when you were back to, you know, quote unquote, relative safety in in various places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny talking about it now and reading it because it reads, you know, like a story, like a thriller or something. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And I was like, oh, wait, that really all happened. Yeah, (laughs) I I know. I I was reading it out loud myself to, you know, to get ready and think about this. And it's interesting. I mean, I think that's, to me, one of the interesting things about hearing a story out loud and listening to a story read and that it is a real first-person true story. You go, this really this really happened. I mean, Yeah. And I was, you know, I did apply my journalistic credentials to, you know, try and get corroboration and fact-check everything that I could. So I'd like to, you know, I did track down everyone yeah. I could who is still alive that I that I could find to to and that did lead to you know some significant amendments and a couple of corrections and also helped me figure out that some things that I did not really realize were issues were really bad mm-hmm. and other things that I you know was more scared of than I should have been so right. it's um it's a it was an interesting process yeah and, and that's the the thing about looking back at something and the hindsight that we can apply to the past in our own lives and say, well, this really bugged me at the time, but it turned out to be not not nothing. I mean, nothing in this story is nothing. <laughs> I will just 
say. Yeah. Yes, and that's uh, that's how people who live in work or are deployed to hostile environments like this survive. They're constantly calculating uh, relative risk and trying to figure out the different circles of hope, as I identify, as how I describe it, mm-hmm. in the way, sense that okay, being in the capital is better than being out of the capital. Uh, for example, veterans would tell me being on a forward operating base is better than being on a combat outpost, and being on an outpost is better than being on patrol, and mm-hmm. being behind this rock is better than not being yeah. behind this rock. <laughs> Um, so it's how you deal with that and accept that. And, right. Um, Our definition of safety changes depending on, on what it is. And that was certainly something that I felt reading this as you drive deeper and deeper into Afghanistan and then through this mountain pass and then through this tunnel I mean just driving through that tunnel I have to say at at every different interval of your trip and I will say for the nervous people out there who I count myself (laughs) leader of the nervous and scared people um the description of you landing in Kabul was (laughs) enough for me to say (laughs) okay If I ever even thought I might want to go to Afghanistan, which I never have, that's it. I'm out. That's not going to happen. But to get back to going through that tunnel, I mean, at each stage of this, were you feeling more and more out of control or were you just getting more and more internal? What was that like? Oh, definitely was getting more and more beaten down and and feeling helpless and mm-hmm. uh, vulnerable. Yeah. And I, I think that's why I, I kind of describe the book as not your usual war story, because I was lucky enough to be able to maintain my composure mm-hmm. through most of it. But the pain and fear is all inside. And I'm trying to be honest with that in the book. Right. So it's, you know, that's the, one of the things that bugs me about Hollywood depictions of these kind of events is where yes. everyone's all kind of doesn't seem to be having an impact on them. They're all, or immediately moving on to the next challenge kind of thing mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Uh, unperturbed by what's going on. And, you know, that may be so, but <laughs> the long-term effects, right? people like me who are lucky enough to be able to like suppress the panic and fear in the moment, but it comes out later. It definitely does. I mean, those many of those things stay with us, and that was you do describe that and paint that so articulately and viscerally and help. Thank you what I will call generically us regular folk, (laughs) you know, people who (laughs) have not been in a war zone before who do take the security and safety we have here for granted. And selfishly, perhaps, I will say I'm happy that we can take that for granted. Yep. Fingers crossed. Right. right. It's not something to be taken for granted. You know, if if that's the way we like our country, we have to each of us try and do our part to yeah. keep it that way. Yeah, exactly. I should say appreciated, maybe, perhaps, because I, I agree. We can't take it for granted, but I it is does not go unappreciated. And I think that this helps us yeah. think about that. And I think that's one of the things that can trigger a, a bad reaction in someone who's been somewhere like that is a circumstance that suddenly feels like that blanket of security could be ripped away. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't mind guns. I've done some shooting since I got back mm-hmm. because if it's in a safe, controlled environment, 
it's just a thing. It's not threatening. Right. And yet sometimes when I'm alone in the dark and I start to hear fireworks, mm-hmm. which are, you know, just as benign, mm-hmm. you know, it's suddenly, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, this takes me back. The chills come back or whatever. The goosebumps. Well, it's and, uh, the, the circumstance. Yeah. And I especially love the way that you wrote Guns Fired in Anger because as the delineation for what you had not yet experienced. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, that's... It's pretty clear. Yeah. <laughs> this is not. This is not. F- not fun. I certainly had not heard it described that way before. But good. Yeah, I, that's why I'm hoping that you know it's not just young men or old military history buffs who are going to be liking the book. I'd like to think that there's enough like, insight into the human condition to make it appealing to everyone. Absolutely, I will say, as someone who has not typically been into military, war history, although the older I get, I do get more interested to understand what happened before this thing so you can understand what now is about. I mean, that historical context to understand today, I think is more important than ever. And this is a fantastic book to begin getting a deeper picture into what was happening in Afghanistan Pre-9-11. Thank you. Yeah. And in many ways, it's still happening. I I think we put a lid on all these little local powers and local strongmen while we were there because we thought it's not on brand for the U.S. to be embracing these people, some of whom are are pretty nasty. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you're going to take away the U.S. military support, then those are the people you need Mm -hmm. if you want to keep your regime going. Yeah, I was going to say, we're (laughs) recording this in August of 2021, the current situation is something that's going to be constantly changing. So we're not addressing what's going on right now. But to that point, there's so much to understand about the history that helps us say it's usually so much more complex. Well, there are, yes, extraordinary parallels between the time I was there and the time now, because, you know, the superpower that was occupying the country had just left with a a weak regime in the capital. And that regime surprised everybody in uh, 1989 by completely checking the Mujahideen offensive that year and the next year and the year after that. And it was a difficult place to be and the battle lines were stalemated. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the regime, had it not been for the eventual cut of Soviet aid, could have figured out a better way forward for the country but wasn't to be Mm -hmm. um in terms of this as i don't want to reduce it to quote unquote an adventure story but it certainly includes that as well as being historically significant i went through a pretty significant span of time i don't know i feel like a few years at least where i started off being very into reading books of mountain climbing and like scaling Mount Everest and pushing to the human extreme. And then that sort of morphed into Uh Arctic exploration too and like history. So in that genre, perhaps of extreme exploration, I mean, it it wasn't exactly exploration, I realized, but um, adventure, this is very engaging to people who are interested in reading those types of stories, which I think to your earlier point goes beyond just military 
history and interest. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I have tried to, like I said, reach as broad an audience as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yes, there's the adventure element. There's the educational element, for want of a better word, with the insights into insurgency and politics and mm -hmm. history of Afghanistan. And then, but also... This it, I don't know. It's kind of like a coming of age story. As yes, well. it's that too. Because I thought I was all that in a bag of <laughs> chips, and then ah oh no, I've still got a lot to learn about life. <laughs> yeah, well, and actually that leads into my next question. If you don't mind me cutting you off, that was to me one of the very daring things about this book, about this story. But my question that I do like to ask everyone. What was daring about this book for you, this story for you, even reading it out loud? What what was daring for you? Um, well, I think the thing that is most challenging is exposing my vulnerabilities mm -hmm. in that sense. You know, the events happened. So, you know, I dared to go to Afghanistan. That's one thing. But trying to share the vulnerabilities, the fears, the paranoia. You know, I, mm -hmm. at one point I'm getting completely delusional from exhaustion and fear and just trying to come to terms with everything that's going on mm -hmm. and sharing that and sharing, you know, my subsequent story about trying to process it, you know, without dwelling on it or making it grim or anything. It's just um, I hope that that helps people understand people who've lived in places like that, who, who've served in places like that. I only had, I call it a taste of war, a taste of, of all that horror and terror. And it still resonated through my entire life, you know, to this day where back to where we started getting goosebumps and, and not in my stomach mm -hmm. from just hearing you read the first few words. And it's so much harder for so many more people to come back. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I can't fathom what that processing is once you have been there for so much longer and why it just has so many of the reverberations that it has when someone does come back. Um, but also to your point about the vulnerability, I, I think that that is incredibly brave how you do open up and let us see your internal holy shit moments you know just the wow I can't believe this is happening to me and yeah that you had come from a person who you would think was primed in every way with military background, international reporting background, and love of the history of the of that specific region even. And mm -hmm. it still is such an eye-opener that you are so real and let us in and let us feel that vulnerability with you. And I think that that's certainly what I related to because you allowed me to visit it with you. Well, thank you for coming along the journey. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm so glad we've had a chance to talk after working together for, I don't know, 20 years, years. right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's been wonderful. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed our conversation, too. Because I bumbled through the wrap-up of our conversation, 
I will pop back in now to give some of the details about Chris's book, Bumbling Through the Hindu Kush, A Memoir of Fear and Kindness in Afghanistan, is now available online. You can find Chris Wolf with the hashtag BumblingBook on Instagram, as well as you can find him on Facebook, and he's even been answering questions about Afghanistan and his journey uh, on YouTube. So just search for his name, Chris Wolf, W-O-O-L-F, or hashtag BumblingBook for that as well. Again, thank you to Chris for spending the time and sharing a chapter of his book with us. If you enjoyed hearing it, he has also recorded, unsurprisingly, an audio version of it as well. I hope you will check out my website where you can sign up for the newsletter of the Daring to Tell podcast. I'm calling it Hit Pause. I send out some of my thoughts and musings that happen when I'm the person hitting pause when I put these episodes together next month. We will have a chapter from another just-released memoir from author Peg Conway. She will read a couple of chapters from her book called The Art of Reassembly, a memoir of early mother loss and after grief. Gaining purpose, she continued, I am legally your mother now, and Mark, of course, will call me that, and I think it would be nice for all of you to call me the same thing. She paused, then concluded with, I would like it if you called me mom. Since that horrible November morning, more than five years earlier, we had only reluctantly spoken the word mom, when absolutely necessary, and then in a hushed tone of reverence. Could I call someone different by the sacred title? That's it for this month. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend about it. Daring to Tell is produced by me, Michelle Rado, and the music is written by my husband, Phil Rado. You can hear lots more of his music on Spotify or Bandcamp. And thank you so much for daring to listen.